It's always great to meet with brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a proverb, it says, it's Proverbs 27, 7. It says, a satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb, but to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. I'm sure you can identify with that if you've had too much honey at one point, or you've been so full from eating that even the thought of good food, your favorite food, did not sound appetizing at the moment. We can be full of food, so we don't want food, and we can also be tired of it. When I was growing up, the thing we had all the time was oatmeal, like oatmeal all the time. And I grew very weary of oatmeal. And uh, there's a story about that, something similar in the Bible, when God provided manna for his people. They had this miracle where God sent bread from heaven every day for them to gather up and to survive in the wilderness. And uh, before long, people grew tired of it. They were baking it and making cakes out of it and trying all these new recipes. But at a, at a point, they were like, oh, we hate this. Our soul loathes this bread. And somehow, this miracle of God became mundane. Something that they were actually, their life was dependent on, they hated, which is really a bizarre thing, but common to people, I suppose. We, we can be the same when it comes to the gospel or when it comes to God's grace. It, it can become very commonplace to us, like, like salt. It was once a commodity. It was currency. But now we just expect it to be on the table, and it's really worthless to us. It's flavor. It's more flavoring than, than currency. And somehow the grace of God, we, we've heard of it, we can explain it, we can describe it, yet there's a point where it loses that sort of, we lose the awe in God for the grace he's shown us. Somehow the things that, that salvation that was so brilliant, it can lose its luster. And that's just us. We get, we get complacent. We get bored. So my prayer is that God would open our eyes again to his grace and instill in us again that awe that he would be mindful of us, that he would uh, give us salvation and forgiveness, and that he wants to redeem us and be reconciled to us. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for your word and for your grace. It is amazing that you would love us the way you do, that you'd give us such promises and that you are, you are truly our Father in heaven, that you sent Jesus to be our Savior, that through his death and resurrection we can have new life, that we can be born again, be washed clean of all of our sins, and be your children, usable in your hands. Just thank you for that truth, and, and may it not be lost on us today, Lord. Fill us with praise and joy for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God's grace is extravagant. It really is shocking when you think about what he's done for us. And we can be like the, the people in Jesus' hometown. They thought he, they were familiar with Jesus. They knew who they supposed his father to be, Joseph. They knew his mother and, and his brothers and sisters. And, and when Jesus returned from doing miracles and preached, people said, well, they were confused and they were offended by him because they're like, He's acting like he's somebody, but we know who he is. We know where he's from. What right does he have to be teaching us? Like, we, we know what we're doing. And 
we, we can treat Jesus in that way, where we start to forget that he is God, and he has given his life for us, and how we should uh, respond to that. So God's people, they were in this state. God had brought them out of Egypt. He had brought them into the promised land. He supplied them with his presence and his word and his laws, priests and prophets, and, and everything was for the good of those people, yet they drifted from God. And they began to go their own way, sought after idols. And when he sent people to correct them, they didn't believe them. And they tried to kill them. Men like Jeremiah. But God kept talking to his people. The fact that he regarded them, did not disown them, never said, you're dead to me. He never did that. He kept pursuing them. That's love, to pursue that act of love. So we'll be in Isaiah 43. Starting in verse 1, the previous chapter, God had compared Israel to a blind servant or a deaf messenger. They weren't fulfilling their purpose as his ambassador to the world, that through the Jewish nation, through their existence and through their testimony, that the world would know how great God is. They were falling far short of that because they had wandered from God. And yet God, he, he would correct them, and he corrected them out of love. So we come to this point in Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. God claimed his people. He said, you are mine. And that is so cool for God saying, I've created you. I've formed you. I'm calling out to you. You're mine. I, I take ownership of you. He refused to disown or forsake them. When we run into shady or crooked people, we write them off, but God redeems them. That's just so otherworldly that he could do that. And he calls their names. He, notice how he says Jacob at first. He says, created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. Now we know that that's the same person. Jacob was a supplanter. He was a usurper. He was a deceiver, a heel catcher, and he's a man that wrestled with God, and God loved him. And yet, and so God, in the passage of time, he protected him when he was working under Laban. He made him wealthy, and then he gave him a new name. And he said, you're going to be called Israel, and 12 tribes, and made of him a great nation, fulfilled the, the promises he had made to Abraham through him. He says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. And as his redeemed, having been bought with the blood of Jesus, how precious that is. When he says, you are mine. You might remember in the movie Toy Story, those of you who have kids, uh, I was subjected to that film many times uh, back in the day. But one of the greatest honors afforded a toy was to have the name of their owner written upon them. And, and Woody, he had the name Andy scrawled into his boot. And when Buzz Lightyear had that name, it was like, ooh, you know, you're special. You've got that name written on you. And God has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. 
He's placed his presence within us. He says, you are mine. I've sealed you. I have plans for you. I created and formed you. And I have purchased you. How privileged we are to have God within us, not just a mark on us. In this little bit here, there's so many allusions to what God had done. When he says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, they would have hearkened back to when God brought them through the Red Sea when they came out of Egypt and the Egyptian army was pursuing them and there the sea lays before them and it was this impossible obstacle and while the enemy is bearing down, God caused the sea to part. They walked through on dry land. When they crossed the river Jordan into the promised land in Canaan, he, he again parted that river. It was at a time of a high, the high point where the waters would overflow their banks. However, he, he did not let them become uh, overwhelmed in the flood. He, he caused them to pass through. He was with them. And he says that again and again. I will be with you. I'm not going to leave you. I am your God. They were experiencing fire in that day. There, there was attacks upon God's people because the Assyrians had come and then the Babylonians would come. And though the land would be consumed, it would only refine God's people. It was not for their destruction. It was really for their salvation. So they would come back to God and they would repent. Verse 2, it reminds me of the during the Babylonian captivity when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to bow before the idol that Nebuchadnezzar set up. And they, they were thrown alive into this fiery furnace, heated seven times hotter, and they were loosed of their bonds, and they walked alive in the fire. And the fourth one, Nebuchadnezzar's like, isn't there a fourth? Didn't we throw three? But there's four. And the fourth is like unto the Son of God. So God was with them in the, in the furnace. Such great pictures here. That ransom, that's a payment made to release from captivity. He says, I've ransomed you. I've brought you out of Egypt. I'm going to bring you out of Babylon. I've paid the price. I will see it done. And as Christians, Jesus has purchased us with his blood. He has ransomed us from the power of sin, uh, the, the penalty of sin and death, and he's given us new life. Jesus said in Mark 10, 44 and 45, he says, And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So he has paid the price for us to be redeemed and reconciled to God. Isaiah 43, verse 4. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored, I and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him, yes, I have made him. Even before the nation of Israel was led into captivity, God's calling them to return to him. He's saying, come back to me as your God. I loved you. I love you. Not because the people were deserving of that love, but because of his grace. Out of his goodness, he loved them. 
even though they forgot about him, even though they wandered from following him. The children of Israel were in Egypt for over 400 years, and they would be in Babylon for 70 years. And if you think about that, that's a really long time. And God's talking like, oh, it's going to be over. But relative to human life, 70 years is a very long time. But to God, time isn't an issue. Often God uses time, because timing is an issue for us, he uses time to test our faith. Will you trust me now? Will you keep trusting me? When weeks turn into months and months turn into years, will you keep praying that prayer that I've told you to pray? Will you keep trusting that I am in control when things seem crazy? Will we, will we remember that God is our God and he has purchased us and he has plans for us and that he is with us and he says, fear not, I am with you. And there's so many things that, that can lead us to fear and to worry. It didn't matter where God's people had been driven or how long it seemed to take. He says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to call them from the north. I'm going to call them from all places, the east, the west. Don't keep them back. He would do it. God would see it done. He's not going to forget one that he has formed. He says, every son, every daughter. God knows every the name of every... He's numbered every star in the heavens. He calls them all by name. Doesn't he know his own children? the ones that he has specifically purchased with the blood of his son? Oh yes, he knows. He knows you. And he's with you. There's a lot that we buy these days that we could call disposable. When I buy tools, I, I weigh the brand, uh, quality, the price, how often I'm going to be using the tool. That all factors in. The manufacturer's warranty and the shop's return policy, that's going to affect my decision. And my, my preference is I would rather spend more for a tool that's going to last than buy three or five of the same tool over a li- lifetime. For instance, you can buy a cheap caulking gun from Bunnings for about three bucks. But the handle is like you don't have much control and they're just really lame. They're cheap. They're very cheap. And you can spend $20 for for a, a more solid one with the same design. Or you can drop $44 on the trade quality that if you treat it right, you can have it for the rest of your life. Uh, that's the one that I, I prefer. I think once you've used it, you're like, I cannot use that other thing. It just is no good. But I don't judge you if you like the $3 one. If you have, And you notice, if you have the $3 one, you probably have five or six of them laying around. I've noticed that. People that buy the cheap one... They have oodles of them. They're just, oh, yeah, and they're covered with stuff. So, yeah, buy one. Can anyone agree with that? Can I get an amen? Oh, there you go. You spend $44 on it, you're going to take care of it, right? Now, God, when he created you, he didn't just design you for this earth. That's not when your warranty or use-by date runs out. He actually designed you to last for eternity, this body is going to wear out, but he made you to last. Your life on earth, we, we scrutinize it and we obsess over it and we worry and we have cares and, and we're so caught up in our circumstances now. But God made you to be a tool in his hand forever. He, he's, you're not going to be like 
something he puts on a pegboard and he brags, like, I spent so much for that. He actually wants to use you. He wants you to be useful in his hand, and he has a specific purpose for you. Have you guys ever opened, like, usually it's some old man, you open up his toolbox, and there's tools that you have no idea what they're for. You you don't know what they're called. It's this rusty thing. You're like, wow, this is like a real specialized tool. I don't even know what I'd call it. I can't describe it. But here it is, and, and it was designed for a purpose. It was designed for something specific, for some work to be accomplished. And if God's designed you, and he's fashioned you, and he's made you to last forever, he's got a purpose and a plan for your life. To accomplish something in and through you. So in his hand, you will be useful, and like the Israelites, you will bring forth his glory. So like, wow, only God could do that work. He knew exactly what he's doing. He knew it when he made you, when he created you, when he adopted you. He imagined every part of you, even the parts that you can't stand. He chose to do that just how he did. Isaiah 43, 8. Bring out the blind people who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say, it is truth. This, again, harkens back to the previous chapter where it says the nation of Israel, they were like those who were blind with eyes and deaf with ears. So they could see physically, but he was speaking of their spiritual condition. They were spiritually blind. They were senseless to what God was doing and what God was saying. They heard the words of the prophets, but they dismissed them. So they might as well have not had ears. So he's saying, bring them out. Let them predict the future. Let them speak of the past. These blind guides that you're trusting in, can they do anything for you? Can they help you against the Babylonians? Can they bring you back from captivity? I, only I can do that. He would give them an opportunity to justify their unbelief, but the overwhelming evidence would prove that they had nothing to stand on. The existence of the Jewish nation today is great evidence of God's existence and his power. The Jews would return to Jerusalem and they would build the temple. And it was in 63 AD, the Roman general Pompey, he captured Jerusalem. In 63, so a long time ago. It was in 1948 when Israel became a nation again. And it was in 1967, after the Six-Day War, that the divided city became one. 1967, that's a long amount, that's almost 2,000 years spanning the gap. But God has done what he said he would do. Again, timing is not an issue for God. His word will come true. And as God brought his children out of Babylon and back to Jerusalem, as he's brought them from the north, south, east, and west into Israel today, God is going to bring these perishing bodies into his presence for eternity with exceeding joy. And that's awesome that God would do that for us. Isaiah 43.10 You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. 
I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I have declared and saved. I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. Indeed, before the day was, I am he, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, and who will reverse it? I love it when God talks about what he does. He's like, who's going to stop me? This is what I do. Israel had experienced his deliverance and salvation. They had been witnesses of his glory on Sinai, where the earth shook, and the fire and the smoke and the lightning and the thunderings were heard, and the trumpet blast was exceedingly loud, and the people shook and said, Moses, you talk to God. He's too awesome for us to talk to. He's going to kill us. He's like, no, no, guys. He's putting the fear in you so that you'll fear him. Not treat him as a a little trite thing. He is God, the creator of everything. They saw his prophecies fulfilled. They had so many existence, proof of his existence. You think of Elijah and the prophets of Baal and how fire came down from heaven and consumed the offering. And the people said at that moment, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. But it was not long before they went back to the Baals and they forsook the Lord. I'm so blown away by verse 10 where he says, where he says, I have chosen. And then he says that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. God has chosen us so that we might know him and trust him. Think about famous and influential people in the world today. They don't really care to be known by you. They're happy to have fans. They're happy to have uh, fan clubs or people who flock to their shows and buy their music and merch. Or, uh, But they don't desire intimacy with just anyone, right? You can try emailing your, your favorite star, your musician or celebrity. But even if they get back to you, it doesn't mean they're your friend, right? They have layers of security. You can't just go and, and go to their house and say hi. They've got bodyguards. They have secret entrances and exits. They hire, some actually hire doubles to make appearances for them for their PR. They're not interested in being known. This may not, uh, I'm, I'm making generalized statements here, but the, po- the point I'm trying to make is God is greater than any man. And yet he says, I want you to know me. I want to be your friend. And I'm a king. He's the king, the king of everything. And he's saying, I want you to know me, and I want you to believe me. If you know me, you will believe me. I really sympathize with celebrities, because who can you tell who's really genuine and just not after uh, fame or money or recognition or like it's really difficult but see God he's not insecure in any way because he's God and he's saying I want you to know me and I want you to trust me I want you to believe in me that what I said I will do all other gods are frauds they can't speak they can't save or deliver but I've declared I've saved and I work how do you like that I work Who will reverse it? Who can undo what I do? 
When Jesus came to his people, they rejected him. But the scriptures say that as many as received him, Jesus, to them gave he power to become sons of God and eternal life as well to those who believe on his name. If you could turn to Acts chapter 1, there's just a little thing I want to read there. Abraham believed God, the scriptures say, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So we see that salvation by faith, it preceded the law. And those who repent and trust in Christ, they are the true children of God and have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Jesus gave this commission to his disciples before his ascension. And the power demonstrated through Christ's life and resurrection and his willingness to face death is the same power that dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus promised his disciples to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And this is what it says in Acts 1, 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So in Isaiah 43, he said, you are my witnesses to his people. And here, Jesus says, once the Holy Spirit is, you are born again and he he is overflowing in your life, you will be witnesses for me here, there, and everywhere. So those Christians who are willing to be filled with his spirit and overflowing with that spirit, we can be his witnesses. For that's what, what, that's what our calling is. That's really our birthright. Witnesses should tell the truth, right? And we're to follow Jesus who is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. Now back in Isaiah, if you'll turn there, In verse 12, he says, I have declared and saved, I I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you, therefore you are my witnesses. When we put away our idols, we can be effective witnesses for Christ. There's a connection between the two. If we're holding on to idols, then we're not going to be the witnesses that God's called us to be. But when we put aside our idols, then it's like, okay, now God's going to work through your life because you've been obedient. He's the one who's doing the work. And our lives as Christians is to be a demonstration of God's power, that same dynamic power that raised up Christ from the dead. And I want that to be evident in my life. Verse 14, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, For your sake I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, the Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your king. The fact that God redeemed his people, it strongly indicates his care for them and his future plans for them. Right? He didn't purchase them unless he planned on being together with them and having a plan and a future for them. He created them, he also redeemed them. And that word redeemer it hints to being the next of kin. The picture of Boaz, how he was the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. And the purpose of that union was to raise up godly seed. 
And so that is a picture of what God has done for us. He desires that we be fruitful. And he's saying, I'm your next of kin. I'm your redeemer. And he is our father, right? God the father. And twice here, he identifies himself as the Lord, that self-existent eternal one, and the Holy One of Israel, your Holy One of Israel. It's very personal. To be holy is to be sacred. That means worthy of respect or worship. And God reminds them, I am your king. He would use the Babylonian captivity for the good of Israel, and he would bring them out. Babylon would conquer Israel, but the Medes and Persians would be raised up to conquer Babylon. So the victors would be defeated. God did not purchase you with the blood of Jesus to forget about you, but he's created you for a purpose. And he has plans for your life now and for eternity. And if you've trusted, entrusted your soul to God for eternity, won't you trust him with your future here on earth? What's happening tomorrow or next week? Won't you give yourself to him? Verse 16. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinguished. They are quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people I have formed for myself. They shall declare my praise. We have another reference to bringing through the mighty waters. So God delivering his people through the Red Sea. They walk through on dry ground. And as they reached the other side, the waters did not come down. So they were like a wall, it says, on the right hand and the left. And God allowed the Egyptians to take their chariots and horsemen and, and soldiers all the way to the middle. Now, just put yourself in that situation. You're really afraid, you're, you're afraid for your family, for your own life. You've, come to, you've already put your, your life in God's hands to walk through with waters of walls of water on the right and the left. You've reached the other side, and you're like, all right, shut the gates. You're like, close it off. And and there they come. And here they're going, whoa, they're getting closer. Like, they're, they're just going to come right through. But it wasn't until they arrived in the middle that God said, okay, Moses, now stretch out your hands. And it says that God fought against the Egyptians, caused their wheels to fall off, and there's this massive traffic jam right in the middle of the sea. And it was at that moment when the Egyptians go, whoa, we're in a vulnerable position here. We best turn around. But there was no turning around and there was no running because there they are in the middle of the sea and Moses stretched out his hand and the water fell upon them and consumed them all. And all their enemies were destroyed. That's in Exodus 14. That mighty army of the Egyptians, God compares to one lit candle. When the wind blows, it's like, oh no, we got to protect that from a little breeze, right? And he says, that army to me, I just extinguish them. The biggest struggle or problem that you can imagine, to God, it is like a flickering candle. 
That's like the life of everyone in this room. That's how precarious life is. And yet God has sustained you until now. And he has revealed himself to you. And he wants you to trust him. You could have been blown out by now just as easily as a child can blow out candles on his birthday cake when he's two years old. For fun. Easy. Right? God has been gracious. He's been good to us. And then he says, this is, this is shocking. He says, don't remember the former things because I'm going to do a new thing. Don't just keep thinking about the way that I, I helped you all those years ago. That's almost become legend. We go, oh, the Lord brought us out. And they would celebrate the Passover and they would remember that God had brought them out. But he says, don't, don't dwell on that because I want you to be looking forward to the expectancy of me delivering you again. It wasn't like God said, forget about everything I've done for you. That's not what he's saying, but he's saying, don't remember that. Don't, don't uh, just kind of worship what I've done for you, but understand I'm the one to be worshipped because I'm going to deliver you because I love you. God made a path through the sea, and he's like, I'm also going to make a path in the wilderness. I'm going to supply water for you when you need it. Now, this causing waters to flow in the desert, God did that, and I believe he continued to do that. But it also uh, has a future reference, which is spoken of in Revelation. In Revelation 12, it talks about uh, Israel personified as a woman because she's got those 12 crowns that represents the 12 tribes. And this woman, so the nation, give birth to a male child. And this male child is the Messiah that God had promised would come from the nation of Israel. Now, Satan, the dragon, he he waited when that child was going to be born, trying to devour that child, trying to destroy it. But God would save his people. Now, listen to what it says in Revelation 12, 5, and 6. So this is a future event. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. That amount of time is exactly half of the great tribulation period. So three and a half years where the nation, when they see in the temple the abomination of desolation, they will come to their senses and realize the Antichrist was a farce and they will flee into the wilderness where God will feed and water his people as he did many years before. And so he says, don't don't dwell on that. I'm going to do a new thing. How many of us want God to do a new thing? Deliver us in a new way? I do. I most certainly do. That period of great tribulation, it's referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 37. It says, alas, for the day is great, there is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. God is a savior, and God's provided living water for us today. If you're thirsty, come to him and drink. Trust in Christ. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. He'll cause those springs of water to flow even in the desert, even in a desert place. He will. And that's, um, we're going to get to that. But having been washed and cleansed with the blood of Jesus, 
purchased. Can you identify with the Jews who were going through a tough time? Because remember, he's speaking to the Jewish people. They were going through war, the sword, famine, pestilence. This this is what's going on, and yet God's saying, hey, don't focus on the past. Realize I'm going to save you out of this. I'm going to deliver you. And he's saying this before the captivity. I'm going to bring you back. They hadn't even left yet. But he's saying, are you going to trust me? Can you identify with that? It's like God said, I saved you once. I'll save you again. But I'm going to do a new thing. I've made the sea dry ground for your feet. I made waters in the desert where there was no water. You're my chosen people. I formed you. I love you. And you will declare my praise. God is the God of the mountains and the valleys. He is the God of the dry land and the sea. He is the God of an oasis and the desert. He's created and redeemed you. Are you willing to praise God for his salvation when the enemy is bearing down on you or when you're dying of thirst? Will you trust him that much? And this brings us to a point of application. It's in Genesis. I have to tell a little story, a story you might already know. But there was a man named Abram. During his travels, he had acquired a maidservant for Sarai named Hagar. She was an Egyptian woman. And God had promised that out of Abram's seed, all nations of the world would be blessed. That's a pretty big promise. All nations are going to be blessed by you. And his wife was barren. Sarai was not able to conceive. So I don't know if they, they, I don't know if anyone was blamed for this infertility. But over the passage of time, Sarai was doubting that this was going to happen, and Abram too. And so she said, well, perhaps Hagar, this Egyptian maidservant, you can, we can have children through her. So she did fall pregnant by Abram. But after that pregnancy, after she fell pregnant, the tensions among the women became strained. Because Hagar stopped giving Sarai the respect she deserved, and Sarai was bitter and tr- treated her harshly. She was rough towards her. To the point when Hagar just said, I'm out of here. Pregnant, she left. She ran away. Desperate, she's in the wilderness, and she finds this well of water. And though she is an Egyptian, God comes to her and speaks to her through the angel of the Lord. Genesis chapter 16, if you'll turn there, we have a couple of passages to read. Genesis 16, starting in verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord, just before we get into this, this is the first reference to the angel of the Lord in your Bible. It's likely capitalized because it is likely a theophany, which is a a an appearance of Jesus Christ before he was born of Mary. Because there's this interchangeableness, like with Joshua, for instance, he worships this angel of the Lord, who was the commander of the Lord's armies. And no angel besides God. Uh, so only God receives worship. Angels always say, hey, don't do that. I'm not God. Get up. Like in Revelation, when John falls before the angel a couple of times, quite overwhelmed by the situation. Well, when Joshua did, there was no, hey, get up. He received that worship uh, with Manoah and uh, Samson, angel of the Lord, with Gideon, angel of the Lord, and here with Hagar. But this is the first. 
Genesis 6, 16, 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So in the wilderness, Hagar finds this spring of water. So she's hanging out there, and this angel of the Lord meets with her. And he seems to know a lot about her already. She didn't tell her tell him anything. But he's like, hey, Hagar, Sarai's maid. What are you doing? Like, where are you going? Where'd you come from? And she's like, well, I'm running away. And he says, return to your mistress. And then he gives her a promise. He says, the son you're carrying, I will make of him a great nation. His name will be called Ishmael which means God will hear. God will hear. Now, people can be very hard on Ishmael for his very existence. Uh, But remember, it's God who gives conception. It's God who makes men great and brings them low. It's God who raises up nations and puts them down. And some have blamed, let's say, the problems that we see in conflicts in the world today on Abram, who was Abraham and Ishmael, But that's without biblical merit. I started thinking about this and saying, well, there would be a lot less sin in the world if I wasn't here. (laughs) So I shouldn't be very hard on Ishmael like he's like the evil seed or something. He was the child of the flesh, yes, but God made of him a great nation. It's a picture for us. But God loved Ishmael, and you know, Abraham did too. He was loath to part with his son that he loved. But this brings us to the next point. They come to that that place. You are the God who sees me. She realizes God hears, God sees. She went back and bore the child. The child's name was Ishmael. So apparently she conveyed this to Abraham and he agreed to that name. So fast forward about 17, 18 years later. Abram is now Abraham. Sarai is now Sarah. Sarah has miraculously conceived and given birth to a son in her own age. Both Abraham and Sarah passed childbearing, and since she'd been barren before, quite miraculous. She was about 90. Abraham was 100, and they have this child of promise, and they had this big feast when Isaac was weaned, having a feast, a celebration, and Sarah caught Ishmael mocking Isaac. And that was the last straw. So he's about 17 years old. He may be a bit of a punk. He, God said he's a wild man. Everyone's going to be against him. Apparently Sarah was was uh, mixed in that. But she sees him mocking and she's like, you know what? This isn't going to work. We can't have these two growing up together. 
cast out the bondwoman and her son. Send Hagar and Ishmael on their way. And Abraham didn't want to do it. But God spoke to him that night and said, listen to your wife. I'm going to make of him a great nation. Send her on her way. I'll protect them. Don't you worry about it. And that's a very loose translation. Genesis 21, turn there, verse 14. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water, and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water in the skin was used up, and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. Then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot, for she said to herself, Let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept, and God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him with your hand, for I will make of him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. Now what grace we see displayed here. Hagar, she has a son named Ishmael, which means God will hear, and she named a well the God who sees me, and yet she is in despair. She is, she is imagining the death of her son from thirst. She is completely resigned to the fact he is going to die. She's like, I don't want to be near him when he goes. So about as far as you could shoot a bow, she went and lay down and just cried. Pretty horrible situation. Wandering in the wilderness. And God says, Hagar, what ails you? What ails me? Our water has run out. We've been thrown out. I don't know where I am. I don't know where I'm going. I'm wandering in the wilderness. My son is dying of thirst. And you say, what, what's wrong? What's ailing me? God didn't forget about Hagar. It seemed like a dire situation, but in light of God's power and his grace and his love for Hagar and Ishmael, this was a very small problem indeed. He's the God who makes waters in the wilderness. He's the God who makes a path through the sea. It's not hard for him. What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. When you pray to God, he hears you. He'll hear you. And he'll answer. God is the one who sees, hears. He opens those seeing eyes. Those eyes that have been blind. You have eyes, but you've been blind to it. He's the one who opens them so you can see. And notice what it says. Then God opens her, opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. The well of water did not just appear. The well of water was already there. She was blind to it. Okay, here she is mourning the death of her son before he's dead. 
There's a well of water there, but she just didn't see it. But God opened her eyes to see it, and by his grace, she she had the strength to get up, fill up that skin of water, take it to her son, revived, and God was with him. We can often be like Hagar. Not just a well, but we have the capacity for living water through the Holy Spirit to refresh us, the power of God to save us and deliver us, to make rivers in the desert, to make a path through the sea, and yet we're afraid and we mourn as if we have no help in the world and there's no one who understands what we're going through. But God hears you, God sees you, and he loves you. He had a plan for Hagar and Ishmael, and he has a plan for you as well. When we cry out to God, he hears us. He provides living water, not just a well of water, a a living water springing up into everlasting life. So if you're in Christ, take the words of Isaiah to heart, where he says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. May God open our eyes to see that present help that he is for us in any circumstance. God has not forgotten Even when we forget him and we go our own way, he sees us, he hears us, and he wants to extend his extraordinary grace to us. Let's walk in it. Let's thank him. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your grace that you showed to the children of Israel, to Abraham and Sarah and to Ishmael and Hagar, to us, Lord, that you have opened our eyes to see you. Help, help us not to be the blind with eyes, Lord. Help us to be mindful of who you are and to recognize that you can do everything. Fill us with the joy of the Lord this morning. Open our eyes to see how you've been with us every step of the way and that you'll bring us out of this tough time. You're going to bring us forth for your good, for your glory, and for our good as well. Lord, as we're refined, may we not lose heart. May we seek after you and trust you no matter how long it's been or how how long things seem to be dragging. Thank you, Lord, that you don't want us to focus on the past, to enshrine the past, but to celebrate the new thing that you're doing, the thing that you're going to do. We look forward to that salvation, Lord. Thank you that you've redeemed us. You are our ransom, and we rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, 